Yeah, our retreat is drawing to a close. I'd um, like to encourage you to put up with the unfinished nature of this type of practice. There is always something unfinished. If we come to the close of a few days of um, intensified practice, um, the gratitude for what seems to be possible and inspiration, what seems to be possible for me, is kind of tinged with the acknowledgement what uh, of the size, basically, of the scale of the challenge in some ways. Um, and it takes um, a mixture of taking heart and humility to, um, to, take it, to take it from there, basically. Yeah. To be living is to be unfinished. And that holds true for meditative practice and the path of insight and um, learning to still, to transform, to purify, and to free the mind that um, seems to be going with a, a mixed, a mixed uh, message. The message says, yes, it is possible. Uh, yes, it isn't finished yet. Yeah. So, And it seems crucial that at that stage we don't fall prey to the temptation to create a self-statement out of the state of affairs as it currently stands with us. It would be all too easy to um, reproach reproaches for all the things we have only just come to understand that we haven't understood them much earlier or so. I think it is necessary that you um, refrain from creating an identity, from creating a self, from creating a definitive notion of who you are from whatever you may have experienced in this course or whatever you may have gotten in touch in. Um, we are capable of growing. Growth is always unreasonable. It's always unrealistic. It's always utopian. Yeah. Uh, consider this, that what you are familiar with, what you know, will be so much more credible, believable, so-called experientially proven than what is possible for you, but you may not yet have experienced So the temptation is always to default to the bit we know. It's not that that knowledge is, you know, intrinsically faulty, but it only speaks of a part of what is possible for us. Imagine when you're small, just how unthinkable it is that you will ever be big, you know, if you have any memory of that, yeah. So growing and expanding beyond what you know seems always unreasonable, um, risky, um, improbable. And yet it is not. We continually outgrow what we know. We continually outgrow who we are. 
we continually make experiences we would never have thought possible for us. So there must be somehow in our hearts a space in which we relate to that which we don't yet know. What is my relationship to what I haven't realized, what I haven't met, what I don't yet know, what I haven't yet experienced of? Now, going to that edge is one of the things that mindfulness helps us do. That's one of the great things about mindfulness because it takes us more into that alive, growing zone before things have names, before things have been pigeonholed as our experience. Uh, And in that growing zone, genuine change happens. Genuine understanding is happening. Genuine enjoyment is happening. And genuine uh, growth. And it's important that we go there. Now, if I'm honest, I often don't like to go into that growing zone. It feels slightly sort of, well, uneasy. I'm uneasy about it. The growing zone is where I have kind of left behind the bit I feel competent in. The bit I have some expertise in. The bit I know how it works. Going to the growing zone means generally it's risky. It's kind of going a place where I'm not sure whether it's going to work out where I'm not guaranteed that I know the tricks of the trade. Yeah? So usually getting in touch with that growing zone means our chances of actually making leaps or profoundly changing ourselves increase. At the same time, we have to acknowledge that if we have things the way we like them, we generally don't go there. Yeah? It seems that some of our most profound insights and our profound transformative experience comes from being in touch with our deepest horrors and with our deepest confusions, with our deepest fears. We look at the history of evolution in mankind, you you see, we have, as a species, always had to confront fears. Every step of growth in consciousness seems both collectively and individually intrinsically bound up with meeting fear or anxiety. Developmental psychology, it's quite obvious that the things that help us manage fear are some of the things that are most formative in our lives. Um, The Buddha, without speaking the language of a developmental psychologist, was quite clear that we need to go beyond the known, beyond the measurable. To be in touch, continually seeking to be in touch with the immeasurable, as we recite every evening, the immeasurable as it is uh, spoken of with the four uh, universal modes of empathy I spoke of last night, or the immeasurable as it is with the continual change and the continual capacity for us to witness and be part of that change. Now that's quite a task, that's quite a task, because part of me um, likes things safe and comfy and domestic. I like to play things so that I feel I'm in charge. Um, and I suspect you of the same, to be honest, you know, without wanting to uh, insult you, but I just assume that there is, uh, um, there is that in many people I know of. So 
if we are looking to in, integrate meditative practice or introspective exercises into our lives, then we need to acknowledge that part of that process is going to make put our safeties at risk. Yeah. If your meditation practice doesn't put your safeties at risk, basically I don't trust that your meditation practice is really working, to be honest. Yeah. This needs to feel slightly threatening. Because you will only grow at the corners, at the edges. Yeah. The growth zone is at the edge. It's not in the middle. Sometimes you will need safety, but championing safety because it is a need doesn't actually make you grow. It helps you maybe learn to build structures and ground and um, feel confidence, but that in itself doesn't actually stimulate expansiveness, growth, inquiry. So once you feel safe enough, it is generally necessary that you venture forth and uh, go forth, as the, the religious language says. So, you will ask me how to integrate this, what I'm talking about, in your daily life. Um, I'm tired of this question, to be honest with you. Um, um, If your daily life hasn't made you enlightened by now, I don't think, you know, Buddhist meditation practice should be integrated in your daily life, to be honest with you. I think it should work the other way around. You know, why, why would you want to integrate something that is made, you know, has it's been handed down and has been developed and has been hard won to free you from suffering and free you from notions of personality and from limitations, self-inflicted limitations, why should you try to integrate something of that nature into a daily life that hasn't such visions or that doesn't have such aspirations? Are you telling me, you're asking me to tell you how to kind of practice Buddhist meditation without touching your lives, without, you know fiddling with your conveniences and comforts and safeties. Are you asking me this? Well, it's easy to answer. You know, It's not going to work. So, like all things that we need to learn, this, this will cost something. It'll cost time, it'll cost energy, it'll cost willingness to, to let go of... Um, comfy self-views, safe patterns of relating, safe patterns of being with yourself, safe patterns of distraction, of denial, of uh, patting yourself against uh, where reality speaks to you. Um, If you feel touched, if you sense in yourself the confidence, the wish, or maybe the despair to kind of not continue, then you will be probably prompted to invest energy, time, intelligence, heart, maybe money, uh, and think how this can become more real in your life. Don't ask it to be um, harmless in your life. 
don't ask it to go into a niche and be safe. You know, I'll do kind of 20 minutes of Buddhism a day and uh, a weekend retreat a year. You know, that that is that's what I can offer. And for the rest of it, please leave my life untouched. Yeah, don't change anything. That's what we do with the car, isn't it? We bring it in the garage and hope it gets fixed. And we'll say, come pick it up on Friday. Thank you. <laughs> so our practice will need various aspects. One of them is um, you will need to fight for a regular contemplative exercise. Yeah? I hope I have made it clear it is necessary for us to charge batteries to obtain stillness. To whatever degree this is possible, and that will depend on your talent, it will depend on how much time you have, it depend on your health, it will depend on the circumstances of your life. Um, but make it possible to slow down your mental processes, to sit with yourself, give yourself, uh, create the gap, create the space, create the temple in your life where you can go in and not be defined by the gross national product or by notions of efficiency. Or yeah, You need to find out how to create such a space in your life. Normally that takes some determination, it takes some boldness, it takes some strategic measures, you know, like pulling the phone and switching off your mobile, instructing your kids and, uh, you know, gently break it to your spouses that this is not uh, an act of hostility or, you know, you, you you need to create that. If it doesn't fit into your day, it is likely to fall out. If it's important, it needs to be somewhere within your 25, 24 hours. While retreats and other heroic attempts are great, basically continuity is what tides you over a lot better. Be realistic. Don't go for three-hour meditation stint and your job and your kids. It's unlikely that you're going to hold through. Um, Go for something you can maintain. Seek a time... Create a space in your day and create a space in your home where you can actually sit with yourself and get in touch with this real, what is happening inside. Turn your attention inwards and learn what helps the mind to become more still. Irrespective of the conditions you experience, you seek the direction of greater stillness, less reactivity, less uh, cognitive um, implications and more somatic, more being with things rather than doing things. I know nothing better than sitting meditation and meditation using breath. There's plenty of Buddhist teaching on mindfulness of breathing, on Anapanasati, on Satipatthana. You'll find plenty of sources. You're all speaking English and this is a you, you, the density of Buddhist activity in this country seems rather high to me, and I think you have plenty of sources. You have also collectively more resources at your fingertips than probably any other generation. You know? Most of the teachers you may, uh, most of the, certainly most of the Asian teachers you may uh, listen to will probably have had less access to Buddhist teaching than you have. Yeah, just to be just to be clear on what scale your privileges are have to be rated. Buddhists um, 
have started talking with each other. They've found out, you know, some crawled off their islands and others crawled from behind their mountains and actually started sniffing out each other and acknowledging each other's presence, which they haven't done for a whole long, uh, many, many centuries. You know, they just haven't talked with each other. If they, <clears throat> they knew of each other's existence by reading their own books, you know, and that's what they still sometimes do, Theravadans, rather than kind of actually speaking with the Tibetans, go back to their books and read about the heretical Vetuliavadans, what they, you know. And Tibetans are no better at that. They just kind of go book, instead of talking with the Theravadans, they go back in their books and see what the Vaibhashikas really think about, you know. And then they identify some poor unsuspecting, Theravatan bloke who has never <clears throat> read the Mahavaibhasha and identified the poor guy's experience and what he says with what the Tibetan book says about the other guy. And then they believe that's, you know, kind of interfaith discourse. So. <laughs> <coughs> There's a few of us who are trying to go beyond that, and actually we've even started speaking with psychologists recently, so I have, <clears throat> I have hope we're actually living in a very creative and fertile time, and this is great, and it is having the added benefit that much of this is public now. Yeah. You have access to so many teachings. If you're a reader, there's plenty of books. If you're a listener, there's plenty of ways you can download talks, order CDs, um, get audio teachings from anywhere. You can listen to them in your car, you can listen to them on your bicycle, you can listen to them doing the washing up. Obviously, you can listen to them sitting upright, doing formal meditation uh, postures and so forth, but you have plenty of sources, more than probably most people at any time in the Buddhist sort of scale of things. Um, so do that. Seek out, consider. There are, an, particularly with reading, there is an aspect of reading that has to do with inspiration. That's what most people easily understand. Yeah. It's more easy to read Jack Hornfield than it is to read the Pali Canon. Yeah? Um, so do read Jack Hornfield, but also try to get in touch with some of the stuff that is older. Yeah? Make sure that you do distinguish in your reading what is inspirational reading, and try also to get in touch with some of the messages you may not like or that may need more translating than, say, Jack Cornfield does, because he's an excellent writer and he's a fine practitioner. He's quite good at explaining. But some of the stuff, you know, which comes from this wisdom tradition doesn't go down so well. You know, it's not quite as, you know, uh, it sounds a little more awkward, or or it is politically not correct, or it it doesn't. Um, it doesn't, you know, it's not like mature wine. It is very precious if you're willing to hold it on your tongue long enough. You know, it will yield, yield a profound sort of uh, juice. But it takes a little more digesting, a little more uh, work for it to kind of yield its fruit. Don't shy away from this. Don't expect, if you read Buddhist teachings, to all inspire you. you know, inspiration is only one aspect. There are things which can really be learned. And sometimes you can learn more if you're not inspired, but if you're being challenged. Or if you're just being informed of things that don't form part of your picture. You know, this is greatly useful. Or seek out people who help you understand this. 
um, don't stick to Jack and uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, although these are very approachable and have profound impact and have a lot to say. There are uh, a steady number of people trying to reach deep, translate, uh, explain, and help other people understand Buddhist teaching. We have only just started receiving this. Yeah, If you think we know what Buddhism is, um, I would probably not agree with that. Yeah, I think we have only just scratched the surface. There is a quarry of wealth. There are so many profound things that we still haven't really taken on board as a culture. Yeah? There is much more there than, than just, say, formal meditation practice or anapanasati. And even of that, we haven't really understood all. Yeah? So you would not be running out of material, yeah? even if you um, felt you, you have already learned a lot. I am conscious I will not, probably not experience that, that Buddhism has truly arrived in the West, that the Western culture has really, uh, on a profound level, engaged with Buddhist teaching. I don't think I will see that in, in my lifetime. Yeah. We have started, and I'm uh, <coughs> still fascinating and inspired to play my role in this and be part of it, and I'm very <coughs> grateful for, for this to be possible and for me to be living now. It would be nicer to be living with the Buddha, but in fact, uh, all the bits in between, I quite like that bit now. Yeah. What else can we do in our lives? If you meditate, if you feel called to formal introspective practice, consider that this meditation needs various stages or aspects. I'll try to do that without Pali. The first stage very clearly is learning to still the mind. Yeah. Slow down, disentangle, gain, yeah. settle the baby, find access to what is allowing me to hold my experience rather than be in the grip of my experience. All form of samatha practice starts with my capacity to actually make myself at peace in the body, in a posture, as I am now young or old, tense or not, finding some measure of peace, of a loving interest, of ease with how I am now, in my mind and in my body. So that's very different than kind of having a sort of rigor mortis meditation posture and trying to hold that as long as possible, you know? So finding where I can abide in ease with myself, with my story, with my life, with my body. Yeah. Finding that ease is not a cop-out. It's not padding. It is essential for the mind to be able to become more quiet. And then, you see, your mind likes to be quiet. That's the truth. That's a great thing. So if you look at what affects your mind, you will find out what excites it and what makes it more quiet. Now, if that excitement is pleasant, we generally want that excitement. Yeah? But all excitement is excitement. Yeah? And even the most pleasant excitement at some point fades or turns into its contrary or just leaves us jaded. Yeah? 
So the mind is also capable of finding stillness. And if it finds some stillness, it loves that. Yeah. It also knows how to do that. Ajahn Chazis is very clearly, if you, you know, if you have a buffalo, you don't actually need to teach it how to eat grass. If your buffalo is a genuine buffalo, it knows how to eat grass. You know, your job is to get it on the right meadow. Yeah? Not the neighbor's fence, you know, not some um, <clears throat> the village commons um, uh, property, but basically your field where your buffalo can graze. Your job is bring it out there. Bring the buffalo onto your field. Make sure it stays there and let it eat. It knows how to eat. The mind knows how to collect itself. If you let it, it will know how to do that. You don't have to teach it how to concentrate. Sometimes people tell me, uh, one-pointedness. You have to make the mind one-pointed. I think this is a tragic misunderstanding of a key term in Buddhist teaching around samatha. You know, the key term means ekagata, which indeed means one-pointed or unified. But this is a result. This is a fruit. This is not something you do. This is something that happens when you do a few other things. Yeah. So you don't actually try to make your mind one-pointed. Any such attempt I would consider very short-lived, painful and frustrating. So your job is to find out what is the direction to help the mind become quiet rather than try to order it to become quiet or to make it quiet or something. Now, that will, initially, will be directed against distractions. Where you need the will is in the bringing back of the mind to your task. Be Be it the breath or be it the posture or be it in a particular aspect of breathing, we've spoken about this. So your will should be directed intentionally to identify an area in which you practice attentiveness. And when your mind does what is to be expected, something else, you keep bringing it back. Not once or twice or three times, but, you know, hundreds, thousands of times. You bring it back. That's where you need your will. You don't try to squeeze your poor mind into a little tip at the front of your nose in the hope it would stay there and you get it one-pointed and kind of laser sharp. It is unlikely to do that. If it does that, it will do that by its own accord. Because you have helped it find the right meadow, you have managed to lead it to the right sort of place where it can graze. So the first stage of practice is definitely that I learn how to make the mind more still. Steady attention, return attention, create an attention that is capable of continual uh, presence with, with something that doesn't drift away, that is able to stay, yeah, to, in a fluid, following way, staying with things that change. That's one aspect. The second stage is particularly important for strong things in our lives, things that are strong. Now, already here, this doesn't apply for everybody, but there are likely to be strong things in your experience, and this second stage is very crucial for those strong, often emotions or feelings or thought patterns, and this is 
the capacity to distance. Yeah? It is the capacity to step back, to create a gap between the apparent protagonist of my experience and that part in my mind which is capable of witnessing this. Yeah? So it is um, a distancing yeah. There is fear, this is not my fear. There is pain, I am not just pain. Pain is happening, it is not my pain. There is anger, yes, this anger has something to do with me, but I am not really the anger, nor is anger the only thing that happens. Yeah, This kind of thing. A thought here will be a thought believed. Yeah, A thought here will be a thought, I have a chance to actually not just recognize its message, but I will have a chance to recognize its nature. Namely, that it pops up from somewhere, that it has a strong appeal, that it tries to get hold of my attention, and that it disappears after a while if I don't react to it. Yeah. So that's the nature of thought, rather than the content, what it says. Learning to create that distance, that step back, that retreat, if you want, is a classic disidentification technique, and this is a crucial aspect particularly helpful for strong things which have a tendency to flood the mind. Anger, anxiety, um, depression are probably the strongest. Doubt can also be quite impressive. So this is what many, many people think meditation is, basically. Getting away from the things that are difficult. Creating safe spaces. Going to some place where it doesn't hurt anymore. You know, for many people, this is meditation. Um, this understanding is a tragic shortcut. You know. While it is indispensable as a stage, it actually doesn't resolve anything. You see, just creating space is a very useful prerequisite for further inquiry. But unless that inquiry actually starts happening, all we do is keep distancing things without actually addressing them, without outgrowing them, without transforming them, without truly understanding them. So creating space alone doesn't really help. It's a simple, and I'd like to be clear about this, indispensable prerequisite. I can't really understand things which continually overwhelm me. So I need to be able to disidentify or go into a safe distance before I can have a chance at understanding something more clearly. But just staying in the safety doesn't really transform it. So the next stage, the third stage, is basically once I am sure that I can stay out of it, I humbly crawl back in. yeah, Gently, curiously, respectfully, in a sort of negotiated fashion. I crawl back in and try to get into a more profound relationship what is so frightening or so powerful or so overwhelming. I need to be able, once I am sure that I can stay away, that I can actually acknowledge this is happening and I need to understand something. That's where insight starts to take place. That's where I turn into the suffering and I'm willing not just to have it, but (coughs) actually to try to go in and find out what keeps it together, what makes it tick. How does it operate? That holds true for emotions. That holds true for obsessive thought patterns. That holds true for the things that pull ourselves. That holds true for the things that repel ourselves. All the strong forces in our mind, we will probably need to inquire. 
Some of the time we will need to inquire things we have so successfully displaced that it is very difficult for us to even acknowledge that they're there. You know? All we get is a little haze or a kind of somebody pulls the, uh, the film a little faster, we have a la- slight blur and then we, we land somewhere where we don't know how we com- came, came there. So there is, this is quite a bit of work. Stage three is quite a bit of work. It takes maturity, it takes courage, it takes realism, it takes humility, you know. It takes uh, tenacity, it takes smartness, you know, it takes quite a bit. So it's important that we don't miss out on that stage. However necessary it is to make the mind still and however necessary it is to stay out of really powerful um, uh, vortices of, uh, of emotion. Yeah. Without stage three, our meditation practice at that stage is very personal. This is our story, our heart, our mind, our conditioning, our temperament, our character, our personality structure. Yeah? This is the topic on stage three. Now, once we have done that, <clears throat> for stage four we go back out and we see what we have learned on a very personal level in our experience is applicable. How far is it applicable universally? Yeah? In stage four we stand back and we recognize that some of the details of what we have personally experienced and understood actually have a universal characteristic. Stage four we're dealing with um, causality. We're dealing with factors and patterns that help to brighten the mind or that help to or that clarify how the mind gets uh, clouded over you know we acknowledge what personal message we have understood and we recognize that is happening with other people as well we establish a personally one experience in its universal dimension These stages, they don't really overlap with the Satipatthanas properly. Yeah? Although this, I make four stages now, they're also not canonical, so don't blame the Buddha for them. For, yeah? um, they're just um, what I believe belongs into any really healthy meditation practice. And It's important that you own up to yourself where you feel you are and what you feel you keep doing in your meditation. My hunch would be that you're probably trying to do one of those things. And it is likely that you neglect another one or maybe several other ones. And it is good for you to think that you don't just work in one plot. They're also not... You can't just kind of plow at one and think I'll deal with the others when I'm done with that one. It, it's not going to work like that. It's like the Eightfold Path. It's not actually... It's more like an eight-track path, yeah, rather than a ladder-type structure. Yeah? It's not sequential. You, you will need to give thought and consideration about your meditation practice in all those four stages. Yeah? While it is obvious you can't really do much insight and exploring work unless you're safe enough from things... There will be other things in your life which you can absolutely safely inquire into and explore. You know, not everything is overwhelming in your life. Sometimes you're underwhelmed in your life. You know, that needs inquiring as well. So, find uh, friends. One of the things that really helps is friends. People with whom you can practice, people with whom you can talk, people whom you can trust. 
doesn't need to be psychotherapist only. Uh, one of the great teachings of, of the Buddha is the teaching on noble friendship. And that is a very, very empowering um, uh, set of teachings the Buddha gave there. And again, it it's underlines the old message that uh, we, we need to be willing to relate. You know? Relate to ourselves, relate to others, relate to... Uh, relating to people who share our aspiration, for example, or who share and are willing to share experience is very, very helpful. It gives us, gives us a perspective on our own story. It gives us a perspective on how we unquestionably think. Yeah, so many opinions and perspectives we hold are unquestionable. Yeah. We just think they are normal. We have learned because... Uh, our conditioning and our circumstances that this is normal. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting if you see that with families, if you have kind of in-laws or uh, friends whose family stories you know, you realize families are really strange things. Yeah? They're planets, and on these planets, kind of all kinds of unbelievable laws are applicable, you know? And the people who are part of that planet, they just kind of start behaving like that, you know? Yeah? As soon as they go into the sort of gravitational field of that planet, they just kind of... <coughs> and if you have somebody who isn't part of your family, you know, who is maybe your spouse who comes from another planet, this is very useful you know, to kind of get feedback, what he or she thinks, what's happening on your planet. You know? what, how, how he or she thinks what, you, know, you operate in the gravitational pull of your particular home planet. You know? Uh, sometimes it's very, very insightful. So make really use of this. Don't make Buddhist practice a sort of closet pastime, you know, discreet. Don't be British about it, okay? <laughs> I'm not speaking of kind of, you know, walking into deserts with burning crosses and kind of... Uh, saving the world. I'm not uh, uh, not speaking of this. There may be a time when we need to think what Buddhism as a political philosophy does to our societies or could do, but this is not my message right now. My message is don't hide with it. You know, If this helps you, if this inspires you, if you find comfort and solace and strength and insight, then don't, don't hide it. Generally, the most convincing statement you can make is, uh, you know, your compassionate, realized uh, radiance in life, you know, rather than what you say. People tend to, particularly if you're married to the people or if they are your kids, you know, you tend to be a lot more convincing if you, um, by example, than by statement. You know, I think the most uh, savage uh, critics will probably be teens. Uh, equipped with an exquisite sensitivity for what is what is real and what is not, and um, the um, the means to let you know if they think you're not quite uh, genuine. So take the test occasionally, yeah, but don't hide with it. Don't don't go closet on it. Um, seek out people with whom you can exchange. Uh, support local groups. If there aren't local groups, consider creating one. Um, 
connect with others on the things that are inspiring to you and on the things that are difficult to you. Don't think of this as a social activity. You don't need to make Buddhist clubs or, you know, Buddhist inscenes. Kalyanamitta, noble friendship, is something that doesn't mean you're going to be buddy-buddy with these people or that, that you need to join another social network. But it means that this is almost like a channel in which you can relate to others, you know. They may be not your your buddies, they may be not potential partners, but they may, pe- may be people who share something, who have an experience and who share an aspiration with you. And if you speak to them on that channel, they may be quite... They give you a feeling of not being alone and they may help you um, understand your own story better. There may be not teachers. Yeah? You may not be responsible for them, but still you can connect, you can enrich your lives with their experience and enrich theirs with yours. Yeah? If you feel you don't have such noble friends or noble Kalyanamitas, um, turn it around and say, to whom are you willing to be such a noble friend? Yeah? Rather than clamoring for friends to come and rescue you, consider being such a friend to other people. Consider that Sangha community is, is uh, something you do. It's not something you ha- have or don't have. It's something you do. You know, any community, any relationship entails work. The planet I live, I inhabit, relationships are work. Uh, I've spent much of my life in communities and they have all been work. Well, Trying to get unanimous with more than seven people. I've never yet seen, I have yet to see that unanimity in groups of more than seven people. It's just, even in smaller groups is hard work. You know, sometimes even with my own self is hard work. <laughs> So, I enjoyed your aliveness, your questions. I am conscious that I couldn't respond to all of it. Uh, I am sorry if I haven't picked up on your note or if I have not understood your name. Um, please come back. You know, this is big and it's unlikely that you pick up on everything and it's unlikely that you, you know, that five days is enough. You know, so give yourself the credit that, um, that this may take longer or this may take a moment to percolate or take what you can get hold of and that is probably the important bit. And if I have insulted you in any way or uh, neglected you, uh, I'm, I apologize. I'd like to suggest we take a quick uh, loo break and reconvene and um, I'm tired of sitting up here I'd like to sit at the other end and be, yeah, so five minutes ten minutes thank you <laughs>